I did have a conundrum for you that combined several of our preoccupations. So we've got parenting, we've got embarrassment, and we have oblique and direct communication with adults. We just need to get in like chess and the mind-body problem. And the the purpose of creating art. The purpose of creating art. Right, right, right. Yeah, totally forgot. Though that may be... Sneak that in. That may be sort of somewhere in here. All right, so bring it. I'm excited. So totally hypothetical fictional scenario, but you're at... Mm -hmm. Didn't happen. Your older child's Taekwondo belt ceremony. And it's very long. And also at the ceremony... Wait a minute. I've just heard you discuss... I've heard you... (laughs) I know yeah, this, this whole is, story. This isn't no. This isn't that story. This is. This is. What do you this mean? Is the, you just. This is in, what was happening in the episode, wings of that just story. T- what? There's more to there's, this story. There's more. I mean, it's not part of the same you story. Could it's a separate do thing. like a like an eight part like investigative <laughs> podcast. It, it could be the new season of Serial. Just this. I guess people in, in the audience in the main feed don't know about about this uh, ceremony <laughs> but this poor kid almost couldn't get the high yellow belt which is like a super racist name for a belt and then he did a, a kick and it didn't work then they brought him away and it, he only had one more chance and it worked and then the the karate master sorry the taekwondo champion uh told a story about breaking his foot and then he should have continued to compete and then he broke his foot again and he could continue to compete and more happened at this at, at this day yeah to, yeah to present so, yeah hypotheticals okay yeah that's an accurate summary of the entire it, actually not just that episode but all of the secret show episodes that you have not been listening to so you don't need to subscribe anymore, but... <laughs> i just no need to pay yeah, i just all summarized for, all of them uh to tell that story uh, the I was very I, I, was, I was very surprised when I talked to my dad and he I was expecting him to a hundred percent side with the Taekwondo people and like the tough love crowd but I was surprised like he was completely on my side which is like a startling it was a, it was a, it was a surprise for me it was a it was a twist uh, nice. he said yeah I would drag you out of there <laughs> fuck those people yeah fuck those uh, people and then I thought um, like, oh, so should what... I have dragged my daughter out of but yeah no yes, why you because your daughter. <laughs> If you made that whole moment about you and like her, your principles and taking yeah. her out of an environment where she felt uh, special and safe, that yeah, would have yeah. been a great yeah. parenting move. All right, I could have, I could more have things delivered. Were... Uh, yeah, a counter lecture and was on the spot. Yeah, so more things <laughs> you are happening. Have stood up. You should have stood up in front of Let everybody. Me tell you a story said, about when I was sir, a young man. Sir, I have my own anecdote. Sir, nobody when I was growing up told me to be a preacher, but I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> Uh, yeah. So while all this was happening, my my younger daughter, who is uh, much less has much less practice pretending to be patient than I do. So she's like but squirming on your lap the whole time. She's oh, I mean, dancing around. I mean, not squirming my lap would be that's that's wishful thinking. But also also there was uh, where my wife and her sister, my younger daughter as she often does, demanded to play with my phone. And I put it on airplane mode. And I like, usually I'll give her like a notes thing where she can like play with the emoji on there. Cause there are lots of, you know, there sure. are like a million pictures, something like this. Yeah. She though has realized that it's much more fun to open up the photos and videos section of the phone. Yeah. And that's so more fun. she opened up the photos section of my phone and she was scrolling through it while sort of i mean i guess it was purely out of just naked prurience but while my sister-in-law sat like not 
looking over her shoulder, but like directly looking with her and they would pull up and examine and comment on every photo that, that Ellie sort of came to. Now I don't have, I don't have like sex photos in here, but like I have photos of moles and I have like every weird <laughs> image or like dirty <laughs> meme that Matt wall or Alice has sent me. Like, also end up in my photo file. Oh, so that's like, so sweet. Oh, Matt and Alice, you hear that? He he uh saves them, he screenshots well, them and it's saves not necessarily your, saves it's not necessarily memes. um oh. I would, it was say, it's actually not I mean it might be nice except that it just happens without my knowing how to make it not happen. So like they'll send me something in WhatsApp oh, and it just pops up in my photo oh, file. Oh yeah WhatsApp so, like, does that sometimes everything right. everything yeah. that has been sent to me or what you know so uh, mostly it's like boring stuff or like weird unflattering photos that my daughter took of me while I was trying to do something yeah, else. Yeah, sure. Like 25 uh, photos of your cheek in a row. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. but you know, there, as I said, like there's nothing purely incriminating, but there definitely is some like some weird stuff in there or just some like, like medical photo stuff in there. <laughs> my question right. is like with your sister-in-law, right. yep. not just crucially yep. not your sister, but your sister-in-law, directly mm -hmm. and like vocally collaborating with your daughter on examining and commenting on every photo in your phone how long do you tolerate that activity if it seems to be what is keeping your small child quiet during this long boring ceremony it's a spectacular question i i think that a lot of it has to do with intent if if i felt like my sister-in-law was prolonging the process or was more actively participating in the process than necessary to distract my kid, I ended immediately. Oh, but I mean, if I am my, the kid is totally occupied on her own doing it. So the sister-in-law is purely right. participating for her own enjoyment. Oh, is that true? It's not like to it's get like vocally the, it's not oh, it's like not to like, get your hey, daughter. Let's do this. More. No, no, no. It's like oh. Ellie's doing it and she's like, oh, this is interesting. And then oh, that's like, got to stop. Like jumping oh, in no and, like making, and like making jokes to Joanna and me about the photos on there. No. And my sister-in-law was and says she is no longer in the CIA as uh, an analyst. And and yeah, I don't know if I should say that uh, in the podcast, but that, I mean, I just said it in the podcast. What is she going to do? She says she's not in the CIA. You know, go look, go look her up. But is this like, I mean, like don't look her up. Confessions of a dangerous but, mind. Like, is she actually in the CIA or was she? Well, I mean, she certainly was for many years, and now she has either jobs that her CIA credentials let her get, or she's continuing to work for the CIA. If you want right. to parse that, you know, God bless. But yeah, so I would be uh, taken taken aback. I live in because she's too much for she's, like, she's not going to be interested. By right? Exactly. No. No. It, it, exactly. No. But she she could use it in some way to 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 ruin me or break me under interrogation. Yeah. I think that I fear that I have. Anytime anyone looks in my in my photos, I fear that I have like a um, like a mysterious open marriage sex life that's combining like violence and eroticism that I yeah. forgot about, you know, that I but I have pictures yeah, yeah. of well documented and in my imagination, anybody looking at my my uh, photo will will discover irreparably damaging like uh evidence that i'm unfit to to be a family man or a teacher or writer in society so no i would end that immediately i would i couldn't if that being said i i live in such horror of needing to entertain my child for like more than 15 minutes in a situation yeah, that yeah. needs to be relatively calm that if 
my sister-in-law discovering my my secret uh pedophilia ring like would <laughs> get my like 15 more minutes of focus out of my kid sign me up like totally right. okay but yeah. if my kid alone would be distracted on the on the app i and my sister-in-law is looking over his shoulder for reasons that don't benefit the kid that's got to end immediately i tolerated it for about two whole minutes which was like no no she's just gritting you're teeth a, the whole time you know you can't because right you're waiting for her to discover something horrible even though you know that yeah. nothing horrible is there it, there's no can i tell you the, nothing the, good the about best, that i think what i realized is the best photo on there was matt wall sent me a photo of his new the cover of his new book which is a book called poems about fucking and the cover is <laughs> is metallic and shiny like it's very shiny. It's like slightly distorting, but it's very, very shiny. And I realized <laughs> like, he was, he took the photo like this, holding it in front of himself while he was not wearing a shirt. And so in the middle of no. the reflective, in the middle of the reflective of, uh, cover is a big, like gender non-specific nipple. <laughs> <laughs> You think he pretended to do that accidentally, but but it's, that was it's hard to tell. I mean, like, I was gonna say the the book before that had a picture of him on the toilet, so I like it's hard to know what's accidental. Sounds like I, a I was I was um to me it was like cover. comparable to like sitting very close to someone who is eating something loud. No, family is complicated. Lovely people, all yeah. Except they're they're great. Right Your sister in law and mine are great yeah. people. Who've done great work for the country? Who yeah. have who have arranged for the murder of the the appropriate people? You know appropriate what I mean? Appropriate democratically elected socialist leaders of <laughs> Latin yeah. American countries. No, yeah. no, no, not necessarily. I'm saying that whoever was murdered based on the behavior of your sister-in-law, mm -hmm. mine, should have been murdered. One of the sister-in-laws, just a, a category. No, I'm just know, I'm just, just grouping the, them together. I'm yeah, saying right. if you take all the people murdered because of the uh decision making process by our sisters in law uh those people murdered were it, they should have been murdered you could almost call it yeah. a, a more legacy of necessary ashes. torture murder and if they protocol. suffered beforehand then they deserve to suffer the, the, yeah, well, the, the suffering was not the victims the initially the, the perpetrators. yeah for the country yeah for the country their suffering helped our great country and you is havana syndrome syndrome real or is yeah, it made up? let's pretend Buckley Smith, and you're listening to Slee Rickets. Thank you all for listening. Thank you especially to all, any of you who've, who've taken a moment sometime this week to recommend the show to a friend, especially if you are at AWP. I can't make it this year. Uh, my wife Joanna is there, so go, go buy her a shot of tequila if you see her. Uh, I know a number of listeners are going to be there. I hope you all have a great time. And... Uh, spread, you know, tell, tell, tell the, the cool, the cool people there, tell the select number of AWP attendees about the show. We don't want narcs. We don't want, I don't know. I'm not sure who we don't want listening. <laughs> the, the Poetry Foundation. The problem is I've, I've just interviewed like two Poetry Foundation people and they're both super nice. So I don't know. Tell anybody you like about the show. Uh, and most of all, have a good time with the, with the off- off-site events and extramarital affairs and 
uh, excessive drinking. I mean, that all of that sounds great. It's the it's the actual scheduled panels that just sound dreary. Uh, and God, oh, gee, God help any of you who've gone for job interviews. I, I mean, I, I, I truly wish you luck, but boy, that just sounds miserable. Uh, so uh, enjoy sunny Seattle. I think it may, be, it may be a little breezy out there right now. Uh, at any rate, uh, thank you all for listening. This is a, we're closing on an episode 100. I promise I'm not going to make a big to-do out of it because as I've already mentioned, nobody gives a shit about episodic milestones other than the actual podcaster. <laughs> but this is episode 99 and I thought uh, I just put out a uh, sort of an extra long, extra poetry focused episode. So I thought I would go back to another, another sort of uh, Slee Rickett staple. I have for you today a conversation Brian and I had. We are back on Senior Watch. Jen Senior was out for a little while. She's had long COVID. She still has long COVID, uh, but she seems to be back. She's she's putting out new essays at the Atlantic, and we talk about not one but two of them today. So uh, we started with Jen Senior, and we are going to we're going to keep covering Jen Senior as long as she does not file a cease and desist order. It was a long conversation, so I am probably going to put the second half of it on the sec about the second essay in the secret show, but it was it was a lot of fun. It's great as always talking to Brian. I should mention I also got a lot of really rich, provocative, thorny, interesting, lovely correspondence from uh, a lot of people. If I've not responded to yours yet, it's it's because I'm planning to talk about it. Uh, on an upcoming Secret Show episode, so I will I will also pr- try to get that out soon. And then all, the only other thing I'll say about episode 100 is I have a specific idea for it, and it's going to be poetry focused. But I think it'll also be sort of sort of fun for a general audience. I hope. Anything else I need to mention? Oh, right. If you would like to hear that, or the second half of this conversation, or any number of other auditory delights then go to sleeverickets.substack.com and sign up for the secret show you can sign you just put your email address in and i'll i'll give you a week's access for free there's 33 episodes up there now they're all pretty juicy a monthly subscription is just five bucks an annual subscription is you get two of those months for free basically so it's all pretty pretty cheap uh and i put out about three episodes a week though i think last month i put out four just as a little extra something for all of you all right to my conversation with Brian. My kids' school has the parents in action meeting group where they you you meet uh, all the first parents or all the third grade parents go, and it's not all of them. It's the ones who want to show up. So a third of the first grade parents come up to this room and it's facilitated by the parents um, of a comparably aged kid at a different school. And the the goal is to get a sense of what other parents are feeling and dealing with, but it turns into this performance of, of vulnerability where you say like, has anyone else been dealing with this issue? And no one says the actual severity of the issue because no one wants their kid to seem like an idiot or a cruel person whose friend you, wouldn't you want one your kid to become. So it's never like, like my kid says racist things at home. What do I do? It's right. always like, does anybody else's kid not want to do the extra credit assignments? You know, and everyone's like, oh, 
those extra credit assignments, yeah. you know, or like, does anyone else's kid not show the right amount of um, like uh, sympathy vegetables. when passing a, a homeless oh, person, oh, you know, and it's right. like, oh, I know it's so hard. Uh, and I, I love that. I loved watching people attempt to <laughs> demonstrate like just enough vulnerability, but but withhold the actual like difficulties in their life. Oh, so you think you see it um, as less like what like my greatest flaw is that I am a perfectionist. You see it less as like no, like, no, it I see like, it as something far like more like complicated a, than that. It's like a, a a way to it's like proxy honesty where you're like, I need some exactly sharing vulnerability, but I can't actually be vulnerable. And I want to be seen as human and sharing vulnerability. Right. So the other moms in the moms group will sort of understand that I suffer like they do. So it's it's just this fascinating balance of like I it really is hard to get credit assignments, you know? And oh, like yeah, yeah. we can discuss even whether there should be homework or whether there should be extra credit assignments, but like sitting down with your kid wanting your kid to be the sort of kid who wants to do the extra credit assignments and trying to trick your kid into becoming that sort of kid is I think a worthwhile interesting enough conversation. Yeah. But the, the the theoretical purpose of this this meeting is for all of us to realize that we're not alone and that our kid throws massive tantrums and says they hate us repeatedly, you know, like, <laughs> like but nobody's going to say that. So it's these, you know, baby steps towards that, which is, uh, which is just a game I love to play. So do you think I'm violating a social norm when another parent in the neighborhood asks me, some innocuous question and I tell them that Ellie throws constant temper tantrums screaming she hates this. Like is am I actually No, I think you're giving them exactly what they want. I think oh, you're giving okay. them exactly what they want. Right. And I it's it's funny because I wonder sometimes why I am not more forthcoming. And I think it is uh I think my my fake answer is because I teach at the school and I don't want sure, these people sure. yeah, to yeah, think yeah. that I as a teacher am not qualified or bad or unprofessional right. or something. But I think the truth is that I am into the same fears that they are, that I don't want, I don't want them to think of my kid as a fuck up and I don't want them to see me as a bad parent and surrounded okay. by this small group of kids whom my kid is going to grow up with for, you know, seven, eight years. I think I want them to see him in a kind light and I'm not about to show our dirty laundry any more than anybody else is. Uh, so you're which, more vulnerable to vicarious embarrassment than personal embarrassment. Like that's something that you experience more than you experience. Like if it were just about you and your shortcomings, it would bother you less. Yeah. I don't care what they think about me, right? except maybe in this one specific professional context, sure. I do care what they think about my kid. And maybe you could say my kid is just a reflection of me and I want to be seen as a good parent. And I don't know what the answer to that is. I'm not yeah. self-aware enough think that's, I, yeah, I don't, to know. I, I, don't, I don't quite buy that. Uh, I think it does. But tantrums are easy to talk about. Like yeah, I, yeah, the yeah, only, yeah. the only way I'd push back is I, 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 I absolutely talk about my kids throwing, even now when they're too old to throw tantrums, yeah, yeah, yeah. because that is some... We don't understand tantrums fully. It, it seems right. like a, a neurological it's like a phase from a god or something, where you're like, Exa like right, yeah, exactly. Whereas branch fell on our house. If, yeah. Right, right. Whereas if if the story is my kid coming home and saying like, 
why do I have to play with the poor kids? I don't want right. to be at their <laughs> yeah. poor yeah. people houses. Yes. You know what I mean? Like yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I wouldn't tell that story and would I not tell it because I wouldn't want them to know my kid. And that didn't happen. But what yeah, would yeah, I, yeah. would I, would I not want to tell that story because I wouldn't want them to think my kid's an asshole or that I raised a kid who's an asshole. I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. There's, there are very few things that I know I ought to be embarrassed by that I am not embarrassed by. The only time I am more forthcoming than average is when I don't realize I should be embarrassed about something. I was slightly embarrassed this morning. I mean, partly because I was looking at nonsense on my phone, which I, you know, like not having social media, I'm, I'm reduced to like playing chess or occasionally looking up like Apple news, which is the worst. I know um, it's the worst. I, I do too. I had a terrible, I had a terrible moment where I, I saw an Atlantic article that wasn't like locked and it had some vague kind of existentially themed title. I was like, oh, something in Atlantic about who you are, why, you, you know, and I, and I tapped on it and it opened up and then I just immediately saw it was a poem and went, Ugh, and went and clicked back. <laughs> like, didn't read it. Didn't even look at who the, who the poet was. It's like, not that it was a poem. It's like, this is a, what, a, what a bait and switch. This is the last thing I want to look at. God, who would want to spend their free time reading a poem? <laughs> Instead, I thought I was reading Arthur Brooks's Four Secrets to Happiness. How does Arthur Brooks have a new Four Secrets to Happiness every week? I don't, I don't understand what a, how what there a are four new secrets. Though I think he seems to somehow oh, genuinely man. believe in his own nonsense. Well, it helps that he is like an, a, a Harvard professor of psychological oh, yeah. four ways to be happy. Like it, right, yeah. it's, it, I, I think that if you are, if you are idolized enough by people within, um. The academic world, as we've discussed in the past, um, maybe it makes it easier to believe your own charlatanism. Yeah, I did. I sensed. I sensed oddly a little bit of that getting ahead of ourselves in some of the the Gen Gen Senior stuff. Well, um, let's discuss yeah, the Gen we're Senior. Back, stuff. We're back on Gen Senior beat with a double a double header, a, sh a small double senior double header. Yeah, double senior. Yeah. So you sent me this piece. What not to ask me about my long COVID, which was also. Also titled an etiquette guide for long COVID in some formats. And that does seem to be like not just an editorial title because she, she as much as says explicitly, like she wants this to be an etiquette guide for long COVID. So I thought a few things. I thought that I felt bad for um, Jennifer Sr. She seems to be really suffering. And I I felt pretty profound empathy for her as well, because a lot of the ways that she suffers um are identical to the ways that I, I suffer. I don't I don't think we've we've ever done this fully. So should I should I take a moment now and just like sure. give the yeah, yeah. one or two minute version of, yeah. of what I wondered when she mentioned Meniere's me? disease, which I, I imagine was something you at some point heard about in your yeah. Yeah. So, uh, and, and ruled out. So I smoked pot a decade ago or so now, and I was dizzy for a day and then it, it didn't go away for a week and or, or a month. And then it, it did go away. Uh, and then, uh, six months after that, I got, uh, I was dizzy, dizzy again for a day and it was unclear why. So I got a battery of tests one of the tests was um, a test where they they pump uh, hot water into your ear at various pressures to determine your vestibular system's reaction to it, and that made me um, that that was a trigger, as it is apparently to a lot of people, and 
reoriented my 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 vestibular system in some way where I became dizzy every day for for six months after that. And dizzy, it's it's not um vertigo, the room's not spinning, but it's a it's a feeling of disequilibrium. I couldn't get out of bed for pretty much a year and a half. And I, I couldn't work for two years. It, it finally I got it under control. Uh, but the side effects, um, the one of the one of the medications I was taking was that I, I had really bad nightmares every night, and the symptoms went away. So I thought I could cut that medication. I cut down on it, and the symptoms were still gone, but the nightmares were there. I cut down, and the symptoms were, were still gone, but the nightmares were there. And then I I got off of it entirely. At which point the sy- symptoms came back. This was just after the birth of my second kid, um, and we how to find medication that worked again because once i went back on that medication that led to the nightmares it was uh, completely in effect another round um considerably longer this time of absolute incapacitation so i after my second son was born i felt every morning as though i had just drunk you know 30 beers or 30 glasses of wine or something upon waking up i couldn't see out of my left eye i couldn't uh, walk straight i only went to doctors. I couldn't talk on the phone. I tried all sorts of charlatans. So, so I wrote an article about this for the Times and received literally thousands of responses giving me suggestions of what might mitigate the symptoms because um, there are thousands and thousands. I, I think I estimate a, a few hundred thousand people with undiagnosed dizziness in the United States, but they... So I tried all of the suggestions and I'm... A these were, these and, are like welcome at this point. Right. I mean, I was I was hungry for them. Yeah. So I, I tried um, uh, everything from, you know, an herbalist to acupuncturist to chiropractors. I, I had somebody test my blood and then tell me what foods I shouldn't eat. So for for four months, in addition to having the room spin, I mean, having my my balance all fucked up, I didn't eat dairy or gluten or soy or caffeine alcohol or firm anything that's fermented anything with processed sugars anything that was treated in in any way so I, I essentially had uh sort of baked proteins and rice exclusively for food for for years I, I got very very depressed um not surprisingly and and it took three years to get me to the place where I could again be alone with my with my kids without fear of of them you know needing me and my being unable to help during that time I saw every specialist in the country and in other countries finally a specialist at in a University of of Pittsburgh uh sent me to a colleague at the Mayo Clinic who said oh we do occasionally see things like this undiagnosable dizziness it fell under the category of PPPD a persistent positional dizziness for which I was prescribed three medications, a, a blood pressure medication called verapamil, even though I have low blood pressure normally, an anxiety medication called uh, Xanax and a antidepressant called Zoloft. Um, I am now on huge quantities of all three of them, and I have uh, vicious, horrible nightmares every night from the Zoloft as well as constipation from the Verapamil and um, fatigue from the Xanax, but it's far, far better from not being able to to live again. So I give every week um, multiple emails still from those articles I wrote four and seven years ago for the Times um, saying, 
I have some version of what you have and my doctors dismiss me because they think, you know, people are just dizzy and you'll get over it. And I'm, I'm reminded frequently how lucky I am to have found some solution because there's so many people out there without it. So I have lived through this long COVID media cycle zeitgeist, but like, or like actual experience, yeah, yeah. you know, that, that some friends have had, but mostly strangers with this, this error, uh, you know, seeing everybody experience some version of what I've experienced for the last, feeling very, very lucky myself that I have found a way to live life again, to teach and write and talk to you on a podcast and be with my kids, none of which could I have done for for long periods of my life. And what uh, Jennifer Sr. mentions, which was definitely the case, is that the depression is is twofold. It's depression caused by the symptoms where it's, you know, something's wrong with, in my case, the interaction among my uh, vestibular system and my brain and my, well, I guess the vestibular system consists of inner ear and brain and nerves. So something in that system is is out of whack for me and I'm trying to, to deal with it. But her talking about how siloed medical professionals are, whereas you go to the ear doctor who tries to see if you have Meniere's disease, and then you go to the eye doctor who sees if corrective lenses will help, and you go to the heart doctor who sees if blood pressure medication will, will help. All of that mirrored my experience exactly. So I have myself now, I've got six pretty good hours of clarity every day from the hours of eight to two or so. Uh, and then I start to fall apart neurologically. Um, but I'm very, very grateful for those six hours. I, I, I remember the real horror and depression being, which Jennifer Sr. just touches on, but doesn't really get into. It's the uncertainty of how long this horror is going to last, where this is something that you and I have touched on in the show briefly, where like, if I had known that I just broke my leg and I was going to experience terrible leg pain for a day, a week, or a year, or five years, or I would have to re-break my leg every day for five years and deal with that terrible pain. That would be okay if I knew at the end of those five years it would be over. What's so yeah. scary in the middle of it is thinking like, not only is my life fucked, not only am I unable to work or be parent or be a spouse or caretaker or achieve any of the minor or major goals, but I don't know whether this is going to last two weeks or two years or 20 years or the rest of my life. And that combination is particularly vicious. And I think people dealing with long COVID right now, um, Jen Senior, you know, because she wrote about this, but a lot of other people are in that world where they're not certain. It's very hard to differentiate between the, um, anxiety of dealing with the symptoms, the anxiety from not knowing how to talk about the symptoms and other people treating you differently and the anxiety of not knowing if this is going to last forever, that anxiety redoubles and triples and sort of makes more severe the symptoms. And then you're in this world of uncertainty and pain. I, I think Jennifer Sr. is saying she's got an etiquette guide, a little bit coy of, of her, um, but I understand that sometimes it's easier to talk about etiquette than it is the very complicated, muddled, intertwined nature of the various sufferings. So I think like you, I found her description of her experience with long COVID extremely sympathetic and familiar from, you know, I have a family member who went through something similar with with, you know, having to like radically alter her diet for years at a time and had, you know, 20 different definitive answers given to her as well as lots of doctors telling her there was nothing wrong. 
uh, and then sort of finally got a, a, a an unpleasant but like satisf satisfyingly specific diagnosis that seems to be correct and now at least treatable in a coherent way. And you know, I've had uh, I had a, um, a pituitary tumor that I think similarly, like it was the sort of thing where if I if I had two drinks in a night, then I would wake up feeling like, I mean, just like vomiting, like feeling like my head was on fire and I was sick to my stomach yeah. with the worst hangover I'd ever had. Um, and had a few little episodes like that before they, they found the little mass and they were, you know, there were hormone elements, but it was much shorter lived and less and like more, more easily addressed problem because they could just go in and cut it out. And and I take a little drug to you know keep it in check, but uh, it was a much like a, mu a much smaller version of that crisis. But I think you know everything she said about going to a million doctors, being condescended to by the doctors, having each doctor decide that you know it's the nail that matches his particular hammer, and having to take a fistful of meds that some of which absolutely. Seem like, and know, what what you say, each I, other. I, two things: one on the on the fistful of meds front. What was fun is the one holistic doctor who made me take thousands of percentage of what normal daily intake of calcium was, which, which led immediately six months later to a uh, horrible kidney stone attack, you know, because like he just like put all this calcium in my kidney. So don't like that guy. But the other thing you said about doctors who either have no idea what's going on or or are certain and incorrect. Yeah, I am since, since all of this, I am so much more open to a doctor who says, not sure what's happening. Oh, Don't God. know. Let's try some stuff. And then that certainty, that, that medical yeah, yeah, certainty yeah. Jesus, is yeah. to me a particularly vicious type of certainty. And yeah. she, um, it's funny, hints at it with a parenthetical. Uh, the, in fact, the fact is, she writes, no one, including doctors, it, it's actually a parenthetical inside M dashes. So the fact is, comma, no one, M dash, including doctors, open paren, is doctors, comma, dear God, these doctors, close paren, close M dash, those the right thing to say to those of us who have long COVID. Um, I, I do, I, I do think the the more open you are to empathy towards Jennifer Sr., the more her sort of wacky writing style I, I could tolerate. Because I, I knew exactly what she meant by doctors, oh, yeah. especially, dear God, these doctors. But it wasn't especially but clear it's, writing. It's, no, exactly. <laughs> so it's there, there's something delightful about, about like understanding, perfectly understanding unclear writing, which is a yeah. pleasure to have when she was talking about the the 9-11 trutherism, you know, with that piece that right. won her the, the Pulitzer um, a year or two ago. But anyway, but yeah, she refers to doctors and just like dismisses them out of hand in a delightful way to me. We're like, we all know doctors are unbearable, moving, but right. like, do we all know that? I, I guess enough of us do that you can get away with that. Yeah, no, I, 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 I completely could relate to that. And I, I think like you, I've come to be really grateful to people like my uh, general practitioner who is very good at coordinating specialists, but also is just sort of generally like curious and clearly very, very smart and very knowledgeable, but seldom totally certain about things she says and tends to be pretty like open-minded about what's possible. Because I think so, like medicine, so, to, like being a doctor is like knowing a colossal amount of information in a field that has such like even more unfathomably. An know, infinite vast. amount of, yeah. right, right. right. 
um, division, you know. So, yeah, so but there's sort of the, they're like there's the description of her experience part of this essay, which I think both of us found sort of moving and and to varying degrees familiar and totally sympathetic. And then there's the the ostensible purpose of the essay, which is the etiquette guide to COVID. And I had sort of two big objections to that, but I'm curious. Which I'm really interested in, in hearing because yeah. I, I, when I read these pieces, um, as is the case when usually people read things that they are experts in, I thought I would have a lot of frustration and d dismissiveness yeah. in reading it, but it, all of this pretty much rang true to me. So I think you and I might, might disagree on some of this. Sure. So what, what did you feel was off-putting in terms of her advice? First, let's identify the actual advice. <laughs> because, because like, my, I mean, my, my it, first objection is sort of a formal one, which is like, had this just been the title, then I would assume it's something that editor slapped on. But she does explicitly say, uh, so today I'd like to discuss etiquette. That's right, manners. I'd like to officer my thing, can't read Fs. I'd like to offer a civilian's guide to navigating the sensitivities of those furious, frustrated, irritable millions and to better understanding them. So she then goes on to say, for starters, asking, are you doing any better doesn't help. And she, she talks about, she says, the better, it's better to say, how are your symptoms today? So that's a piece of advice number one. She goes on to say... To me, that was pretty much the only piece of advice. Yeah. There's one more maybe specific one. I'm trying to find it. Don't like, don't um, be a huge asshole seems like one of the pieces of advice because she mentions telling somebody that she wants to leave a party because it hurts to talk. And then that person keeps on asking her very pointed questions. Yeah. Or the, or the, so that, uh, the New York times editor who was just a total psychopath to her. <laughs> right. 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 Like a very yeah. cruel, if you don't say very cruel things to people with <laughs> like with, no human being should ever COVID. say, or, oh, and then she says, don't ask what it's like to have long COVID. And then she, the, I guess the other thing she says is if you encounter them. So the one paragraph that I thought was pretty inarguably good and clear wisdom, it's sort of a little too broad to be advice, was the last one. She says, uh, talking about if you encounter someone with long COVID, she says, if you encounter them, remember that they are suffering. Remember that they don't want to be pitied. Remember that they've each developed their own idiosyncratic strategies to cope and that they don't need to be told to do more or less or to approach things differently. Be gentle. Disease eventually ensnares all of us. When it happens to you, you'll crave the same. So my, my, my formal objection is like, if part of the reason to write this as an etiquette guide is to make it more delicious to read, then like what I want when I go to an etiquette guide is a list of specific things to do and not do. And like as right. an etiquette so guide, totally, this is I totally, totally not what it purports to be. So like that's just like a I formal to objection. Totally agree with that, that her only real piece of of etiquette, which I agree with, is not constantly asking the sufferer if the sufferer is getting better. Because if you ask the sufferer is getting better, the sufferer needs to constantly feel like I am disappointing you in saying, no, I am not getting better. And I am needing to focus on the fact that I'm not getting better. So there are ways of checking in. And what, I mean, it, when I was really at my, my worst in, in those two and a half years, um, the first two and a half years of Sam's life, I guess, it, I remember being just irate with people who checked in every day saying, are you feeling better? Is it any right. better? Do you see any improvement? But I was equally irate with people who didn't check in and right. who didn't 
ask me how I was doing. So th- there is a certain part of this where you have to realize as the the person who's suffering that this is about you and not them. And like, if the way people are trying to saying, feeling any better these days, screaming at them or lashing out or telling them to shut the fuck up, like that's not, they don't deserve, you know, I, I think saying, hey, asking me specific questions or something is more helpful because I don't want to feel disappointing every time I'm telling you I'm I'm not feeling better. So I, I think that that's, that's reasonable. Do you disagree with that piece of advice? No. Well, no. So, I mean, I, I think the, the, my broader like objection was that the degree to which this is as a whole, like to the degree to which this is like wise counsel or, or like instruction, it's wise because it says, remember that people are suffering and, and they've like, I mean, I think actually far, it's that last part, like they've each developed their own idiosyncratic uh, uh, strategies to cope and they don't need to be told. I think like, don't constantly offer other people advice about how to solve their problems that you have never dealt with because you've heard somebody once had a problem that you like, it's interesting. You were really grateful to be given a ton of advice from strangers. I often find like when people give me advice about problems, I, it starts to bother me, particularly if I did not invite it. Totally. But, I, I, but, I, but think I, I, but was I also think like that in, kind of yes, sorry, gets to my, my larger concern, which is it's not just that this is not an etiquette guide to long COVID, this isn't actually about long COVID or like the part of it that's about long COVID is her experience. What is, what, it, what's not about long COVID is having some consideration for the fact that other people are experiencing things that are not what you're experiencing. And like, while only certain people have long COVID and only a tiny, you know, tiny number of people proportionally have what you have, uh, or have broad, you know, even broadly speaking, what you have, which is this chronic dizziness, you know, it's a hundred thousand, it's hundreds of thousands of people same thing with any number of other specific ailments, but the number of people with some ongoing ailment that's half visible, half invisible, a little idiosyncratic, kind of difficult, like that's yeah. everybody. And so I think I sort of simultaneously think that it's it's a good to remind ourselves to be more considerate of others, but I actually yeah. think it's maybe even counterproductive to say, ho, 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 when you encounter somebody with long COVID, don't do this, do this. Because the problem is like, we're not going out in the world saying like, oh, should I, when I encounter people with long COVID, should I ask this question or should I ask that question? We're, we're asking ourselves like, hey, I know 150 people. They all like, I can't remember who has what. I can't remember what I last heard about each right. person's thing, but I'd like to show that I care. And so like we check in with yeah. each other in various ways. And like, generally, I think it is good to be considerate, but I think, I think it's passing around these sort of like sassy guides to like what to say and not to say to every specific type of person often just encourages people not to talk to those people because they don't like, right. I don't and remember it's... my etiquette guide. I just remember that there is a very specific etiquette guide and they get really pissed off when you say the wrong thing. So I'm just going to avoid talking to that person. And I actually think this extends beyond like illness to like the you know, various race, identity categories, right? Race, like, race right. transgender. Like, I, I mean, I think like treat yes. other people with compassion and consideration, but also like everybody has something and it's not your thing, but we're all just trying to do like, we should all actually be trying to do our best to like deal with our, our, our lives and treat each other with compassion. But like, I think expecting a certain kind of like rigorous adherence to some system of etiquette that's specific to your condition is 
foolish and and maybe harmful. I, I agree with nearly all of what you said. I just some examples. I, I think that that was what I found most off-putting about that uh, Robin D'Angelo's White Fragility book, where mm-hmm. the thesis often is that like white people shouldn't center whiteness and white being white people in this culture of how hard it is to be not white. So we shouldn't ask black people to explain things to us. Instead, we should do our own homework. We shouldn't we shouldn't react emotionally to a difficult situation because that's asking, you know, black and brown people to suffer from our own emotions as well as theirs. And there were all these very, very strict rules on how one should or shouldn't interact with these situations. And as you say, I I don't think Robin D'Angelo was looking to harm anybody, but, but I think that that type of approach, that type of top down you shouldn't interact with certain people in these specific ways. It makes it paralyzes the conversation. It, it makes oh, it very yeah. difficult to have any conversation to the point where everyone just wants to be left alone. Um, the way that this, I think, should have been more about, I think, should have been more about COVID and more COVID specific is, for example, she gives an anecdote and says the COVID was the easiest, practically asymptomatic. I walked the dog, drove four hours in a car, hiked the beach canoe. This was late June. The doctors in my life should have understood that the spooky absence of symptoms was an ominous sign. My immune compromised self wasn't putting up a fight it should have. Instead, they all brushed off my concerns when I rang. To a person, they steered me away from Paxlovid. Then she continues, remember that crazy national moment when doctors were being weird about Paxlovid? and we're really down on it. I cannot tell you how often I would go back to that moment and I take Paxlovid. It's the world's most unproductive form of magical thinking. So in those couple paragraphs, she implies a lot and a lot that I would be fascinated to know. Like, is it true that lack of symptoms when you have COVID is indicative of more of a chance of getting long COVID? I don't think that's the case. I think a lot of people have no symptoms when they have COVID. And, but it seems to be that she's linking those two and saying that it should have rung alarm bells in her doctors who should have come in and intervened immediately when she said she had no symptoms when she tested positive for COVID. Next off, it said, remember that time when people don't take, when didn't people insanely didn't take Paxlovid. I am still really confused about Paxlovid. And I know that some people don't take it because it gives them diarrhea. Is that, does Paxlovid prevent long COVID? Because if so, I I don't think we're settled on any of this. So she, she, she implies a lot. And I think that their thing, um, uh, unprofessional about sort of the, these scattering implications in the Atlantic. And I think the Atlantic does this too often where it, it makes bold statements. And I, I was a, Communist for the Atlantic for a year, like, but I, I I think the Atlantic leans towards allowing strong statements for the sake of exciting the reader without providing a lot of the background information that the reader is hungry for in these moments. Uh, So that's where I think it should have been more COVID specific. That said, I don't see this as an article that is um, written in order to provide people with an etiquette guide. I see this as an article written for what I think in retrospect, and this helped me realize, was the same reason I wrote my articles for the New York Times, where it's a way to publish to the world, look at me, I'm suffering. I want to need to have individual conversations with all of you about this. It's a way to tell the world, like, my life is so hard right now. I mean, she, she explicitly writes the line, um, 
after she goes to this party where this this person wouldn't stop asking her questions about COVID, um, now in the interest of time and efficiency, see my piece in the Atlantic. Um, I'll say from now on. Herein, right. I give you a condensed version of what long COVID has been like for me. So I, I remember that feeling, and it was it was liberating when I could stop telling my friends versions of the you know sure. this is the way I'm suffering and this is what makes me suffer more, and just say go read my article in the New York Times. I that that served these dual goals of one being able to shout from the mountaintop, like right. I am hurting, come see me in pain. And it allow me to say like, this isn't a little thing guys. Like even the New York times is letting me say how much I'm suffering. And this is the way I'm suffering. Come read it. So I don't need to prove to you I'm suffering. Cause another thing that, that um, a, a psychologist that I, I saw a couple bad psychologists for, but then the psychologist I saw who was really great said like, part of what I see in you, Brian, is that you are forcing your suffering on everybody. And that like, you don't need to do that. Like it, it's not, you don't need to constantly demonstrate to everybody how much pain you're in. Um, it doesn't benefit them. It doesn't benefit you. And that was a, an insight that was very useful to me. Um, but again, now looking back at my times piece, I think that's sort of a, a writ large version of what I was doing or a writ large isn't the right expression, a, uh, an amplified version of, of what I was doing um, in my individual interaction. So that's where I see Jennifer Sr. in this light now where, where she's saying, I think that she's writing it as an etiquette guide because like an etiquette guide to somebody who has COVID, long COVID is, is a little catchy and maybe will get you some clicks and is a little bit sort of um, whimsical maybe, whereas just saying, look at me, I'm suffering, it's an appropriate headline yeah. for clickbaity publication looking for more subscribers it's it, it, just to i mean i know i've said it before like if it were just the headline that is a little different i think like i'm going to take this jacket off so I, I do think like maybe just because i like form and convention it's like all right if you're going to do that like get the credit for doing that but then go ahead and actually do a version of that but, but I right. And I'm just saying, yeah. have a little bit more sympathy. Like, I, I think that if what she wanted to do is write an article saying, look at me, I'm suffering. She's a writer for the Atlantic. So she it. has a way to do that. Yeah. But I don't think that I, I don't think that she wanted. I think that feels self-indulgent to write an yeah. article saying, look at me, I'm suffering. So this is the way she's writing that article. And yeah. is she writing the article she claims to be writing? No. Yeah. Yeah. Do I, I sort of give her a pass? I do. I don't know. I mean, I kind of feel like my when I was in college, my friends who were waiters were the least tolerant of bad service. Um, sure. They were, I mean, they also were the bad, the most generous tippers, but they were the ones who were like, no, I know how hard it is right. to do that. And it's not hard. Like that, they should right. be good. So I do feel like, you know, just from a writing perspective, like, I mean, similarly to like, I mean that, cause I think I, I totally understood what she meant in that, as you said, and saying, but in the interest of time and efficiency, see my piece in the Atlantic, I'll say from now on. I, I totally understood that. And I guess even in the context of the podcast, I will like, you know, shout from the knoll top. Is a knoll like a small hill? Um, I feel sure. Like, uh, uh, yeah. So like, I definitely, yeah. I, I definitely understand and sympathize that with that a little bit. It did, it, to me, I think because so much of the piece felt like here is a thing, and she even uses the word unique at one point to describe something that's completely yeah. not unique to her and to totally. Well, that's just Jennifer Senior, Jennifer Senioring. I mean, that, I guess, yeah, I mean, well, and, and I guess like I read that, like writing the See My Piece in the Atlantic thing is sort of in a way like an extension of that same impulse to be like, 
let me tell you, did you know that that we have to deal with depression when we have long COVID? And it's like, that sounds terrible. And, and like, her, again, like her description of her condition is, I, I'm totally, my heart goes out to her, but it's all of these, these sort of funny conclusions and specificities. I do think she has this example of, so there's the, there's the completely like nakedly evil Times editor who says to her, she's like, so it like, it only, she, she really, she actually like owns up to including it, not actually as, because it's not advice because it couldn't apply to anyone else because nobody else is actually this like wicked, but it's just gossip. And she just owns up to the fact that she's basically right. just, because here's an anecdote. My healthier, more a, a seed there, right. Yeah, my cir- healthier, more circumspect self would have would have once filtered rather than coyly starting a game of guess who. And so she basically saying like, I'm going to go ahead, like, I'm doing this to start a game of guess who to get subtle revenge. So on fuck this guy. Because like this guy was an asshole. Guy. Yeah. He gets to write the article. Um, right, yeah. exactly. But uh, why are I'll share it. A few months ago, I told a higher up at the New York Times, we're talking very high altitude. Just like, just focus Why was a that in more. there? It, it, I, think, I think the reason that was included was to narrow the scope of potential people. Oh, you no, know, I think that's exactly from- why. That was and exactly to four, I, I, I think, think well, that she, she wants yeah. this. Yeah, it's to narrow the yeah, scope and to and to person's... clarify that she's definitely punching up, right? I think she she wants to make sure it's right, not right. understood. Yeah, um, but no, I think that's exactly. But I think why she wants it. the person to read this article and know, like, or somebody. I she thinks she out, wants like somebody at dinner who know saying, to read it. "Was this you, honey?" Right? Yes. Like, I, I think. Yeah, that, I think that's exactly that what she wants. She yeah. is doing as a way to enter and then twist the knife no yeah this is this is a this is an exercise of personal vendetta here which is actually perfect exactly like, it's vengeance. totally enjoyable yeah, which i kind of like yeah. yeah she says i told a higher up at the new york times that i've been struggling with long COVID." his reply is that the excuse everyone at the atlantic uses when they're unproductive i mean she then comments on that but like it's just so over the top it's like again like the only reason to include it is just to like like try to like tar this guy's reputation which like good good luck with that i hope it works because that's like just an unthinkably right. horrible yeah, thing to say. It's a very strange thing. It's it's a, it's a terrible thing to say. It's it's also it it implies all of these other microaggressions that like even I yeah. who like my, my wife like ran product for the Atlantic and now is doing a similar job for the Times and I've written for the Times and the Atlantic and I I have no idea what he's implying about the Atlantic there like are it's not a thing that Atlantic writers are always making excuses about <laughs> laziness. Is it? Maybe it is. I, right. I, like, it's like when people are racist I don't in like that confusing, joke. inconsistent ways. Right. Like, like nobody. Lazy Jews? Get, like, like, that's, well, what? Is that a thing that we exactly. believe? Right. That's why all you black people are good at math, you know? And it's like, well, I don't, <laughs> yeah, is that, is that, I mean, they're not bad not at sure. math. Is yeah. it that they're good? Is that, I definitely am, a, right. This is a terrible thing <laughs> to have said. I'm not quite sure I understand it, sir. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, like, I, right. I, I enjoyed that just, uh, just as pure gossip, which is, I think, what it, what it was. I think in a way, like more useful. And like, th- here's the thing that is an example of an actual microaggression. If like, if, if a, if a, if a macroaggression is like punching someone, then a microaggression right. is deliberately saying something like hurtful. Being really mean. Right. Like that's right. a that's an right. actual microaggression. What we typically call microaggression. Well, I actually I I would I would push you back probably a disagree bit. with I me think on this. well, I don't think I I don't think I disagree with you. I think the word microaggression is still in its nation nascent, like definable time, where I think some people would say the definition of a micro microaggression is unintentionally demonstrating right. uh hierarchy of values right i would say that makes it a a microaggression 
I, I sure uh, maybe it's nonsensical, but I I think that like a microaggression as you're using it is sort of etymologic. Like aggression is aggressive and micro is small. Right. So like a micro a macroaggression would be hitting you in the eye, and yeah. a microaggression would be like flicking you in the nose. Sure. Where I think that what it means when people use it most often is an aggression that was perhaps not intended to piss people off, right. but that demonstrates something about that person's worldview, which pisses people off. Right. And I would say that's, that's sound, that's definitely something to be aware of. It's a phenomenon that we should think more about and that is worth addressing and correcting. It's also not aggression. So it's just not like, it's just not well named, but I, but I do think like, right. I agree that, with, I, I, that, not, yeah, it's not to, aggression. To that right. point, because what it is really is a is is thoughtlessness. It's yes, slight. exactly. It's not is failing to consider the other person's perspective. And so, like my my thought was that unintentional actual... aggression. I think aggression needs. Do you think inherent in the word aggression is that it's intentional? Yeah. Because what if instead of microaggression, the term was unintentional aggression, where you're being aggressive towards somebody in so far as you are aggressing i i don't I'm, i guess i don't really I, I, understand I, I, the word he, well here here's as somebody who has been extremely bad at body language my whole life i have been i mean since i was a kid i've been told i was being aggressive when i was i mean not even not being aggressive like talking abstractly about something i was excited about you know in a way right. like i just think it's a totally meaningless use of the term i do think aggression needs to be in some capacity intentional maybe it's not like okay like a conscientious like it may, like it may not need to be pre you know, uh, premeditated, but it does have to be in some right. sense intentional. Otherwise we're just talking about a different thing. Like, like, like there's a, I'm, but what know, if I'm like, what if I'm playing football before school with my kid and I'm having a catch with him and like, yeah. it's a time when everybody is like quietly lined up, but like, I'm a big boisterous dad and yeah. I'm like, sure. I'm like sort of obnoxiously like having a catch with, with my kid. And then sure. like, I'm throwing it wilder and wilder. And then the kid catches it and in so doing like runs over a littler kid that yeah that seems like aggression well, well, well you're doing two different right? things like that, you're talking about you getting like playfully aggressive and then your kid like being unaware of where his body is but what if my purpose in throwing it isn't to be aggressive it's just to give my kid like a harder catch Fine. Okay. what i'm saying is like you are you are muddying the waters by talking about your own condition here what we're really talking about is your kid wasn't aware of where he was running and he stepped on a kid and that that's painful and he should be more aware but that's not aggression that's just accidentally hurting someone and like being carelessly hurting someone negligently hurting someone right and i guess i'm just saying that carelessly hurting someone and still accidental someone. aggression are just two different bad terms for the same topic that to term that is now uh, microaggression. I, I think like hurting someone is like a description of an effect, right? And so right. you can say deliberately hurting someone, accidentally hurting, like that, those are meaningful clarifications. Aggression describes- But an, if we have a definition- but if we have the definition of a term microaggression, which means accidentally insulting people, you just think it's a bad term. You don't think, I think it's it a, I think it's a bad and, and in common parlance. Term. I think it's a confusing term, right? The same way that I, it, I like, agree with that. Yeah, like it became it's it became a term that needs to be explained for people yeah. to say that's really aggro of you, like which sometimes yeah, that's is describing yeah. right. It's, ter it's terrible abbreviation, okay. but it also is just like it's just bad use of language that doesn't. Again, like I like slang, I like innovative language, but I don't especially like language that like 
shuts down distinctions. So right, and it, actually, to to argue your point further, calling sure. it a microaggression does imply more blame than maybe the microaggressor sometimes deserves. Where if the microaggressor is doing it out of ignorance, then that person can just be yeah. told, hey, you accidentally offended some people when you did this. If you say you're a microaggressor, that implies that the person is doing it on purpose and telling them, hey, you you offended these people be useless because they already have a sense of that or something like that. So you've won me to your side, I think, yeah, but yeah. keep going. Well, well and, I'll, and I'll say I, I tend to be like my sympathies are such that I, when I hear things like intention doesn't matter, I tend to think like two sides of that. Like on the one hand, I think, well, intention d- does matter because it is a thing. But then on the other hand, I think that effect matters maybe more than we give it credit for. So that she gives the, I think the much more, the less entertaining, but much more useful example she gives, if we're talking about etiquette, she says, don't ask what it's like to have long COVID, at least not with the naked prurience of one that one, I think I may have stolen that phrase in describing my sister-in-law. <laughs> <Naked> <laughs> <laughs> Don't ask what it's like to have long COVID, at least not with the naked prurience that one professional acquaintance of mine recently did when I made the mistake of briefly dropping in on a, on a colleague's book party. She cornered me and wouldn't stop with her Gatling gun questions, even when I told her the room was too loud and speaking hurt my head. Just one more thing, she kept saying. No more things, I said as I backed toward the door. And and I think like that's not a perfect example because it seems like there's something like either this person was really, really tone deaf or was sort of deliberately being obnoxious. And she 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 sort of pairs cunningly a a fairly curt response with a with a a, a passive and and retreating body language. So it's it's sort of she makes it unclear exactly what the exchange was like. But but what I take from that and, and like which I, I feel which I take also from my own experience is that uh, you know, people say people tend to hurt one another's feelings most often inadvertently by by being thoughtless, by being inconsiderate, yeah. which is a bad thing. It's not the same as being aggressive. Yes. But I would say, on the one hand, like when somebody says something shitty and inconsiderate to you, it's it's most likely that that's done innocently, right? It still is done and maybe shouldn't be done. They should be more thoughtful about what they say. But it's done probably innocently. But on the other hand, I think if someone says something that is effectively incredibly rude to you, it's okay to answer rudely. Like, I, I think I totally yeah. understand when people say, there are pe- things people say to me all the time that are that are so shitty in these funny little ways that never occur to them at all. And my thought is like, it, I get that they aren't meaning to be mean. But if they say something, the effect of which is so shitty it's okay for me to respond in like a curt way that makes them uncomfortable. And maybe that will, maybe that will be instructive or maybe it'll just be cathartic for me or maybe it'll just end the conversation. Right. But if you were my kid or my student, I would say there's really no benefit of you being impolite or curt or mean in that moment at all. You should be constructive in some way, right? Like you, you should say it hurt me when you said that and then walk away. I, I don't, I don't think I, I think that grown adult, especially men, yeah. don't really have a vocabulary for saying it hurt me when you said that but i i do feel like that's the more useful response where th- there's no there's never a reason to be rude and dismissive back is there other than catharsis uh i mean i i think 
Well, so, okay. So, so here's, here's maybe where I, and we, this, this is where it applies to, you know, beyond, uh, you know, COVID symptoms or whatever, you know, because, because these kinds of guides come out in varying contexts for any of the different, you know, identity groups that we are concerned with my, you know, uh, my student wrote like a very thoughtful, I didn't totally agree with it, like a very thoughtful guide to guide for neurotypical children and their parents on how to how to address and respond to autistic children and their parents and sure like and there are these guides for all sorts of categories and groups and whatever and and i think on the one hand like it is maybe not very productive in that these nobody is going to keep all this shit straight and uh, and it, it, it discourages people to have from having conversations with people they know are in some category different from them but on the other hand i'm totally sympathetic to women black people trans people etc who say I'm sick of explaining this. It shouldn't be on me to tell you why you're being an asshole. I'm totally sympathetic to that. And so, and so I, I guess I extend that sympathy to myself when it comes to any of the things that I, that like people say that, that are like truly are really shitty things to say, but that don't occur to them as such. Like my response is that it probably in a perfect world, I would, every time someone said something shitty, I would either grin and bear it, or I would stop think compassionately and respond and make it a teachable moment. But that's incredibly exhausting. And so I guess what I'm saying is like, you can let yourself off the hook. You don't have to like, they don't, we don't need to, we don't need to assume evil and wickedness and aggression every time someone says something shitty, but you also don't need to take every one of those moments as a teaching opportunity. You can just- It's totally great, except the, the, the only, all I was pushing back about was that I, I don't think that is ever the right response. I, I don't I don't think I think of course you can let yourself off the hook for it. And it's it's a it's a socially acceptable, it's not a condemnable response necessarily, but I don't correct a response ever. I think it's I think it's an okay, I think it's a fine response. Like I mean, maybe there's a difference between I guess like I see in this this in Aristotelian terms, like there are there are like actively destructive, like definitely condemnable responses. There are laudable saintly responses and then there's like the the range of fine the range of like that's totally fine and i would say you know not escalating the rudeness but like responding in a curt dismissive way is in the range of fine response it's not the saintly thing but it's fine that's interesting i i don't think saying go fuck yourself i think i think saying go fuck yourself is is almost always going to be escalating Right. I would say right. I would say you can be curt. So what are you? So give me an example. Then maybe. Uh, I think so. So uh, you're at a you're at I, a restaurant. I told you the thing about my your... my neighbor and the 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 projector. I can't remember if I said this to you or not. Well, whether you me or not, the audience probably doesn't know about it. So I don't know. I may and I've got so many so much shit in the camera right now. But um, let me think of a maybe a different example. Okay. So uh, I was I was talking to somebody who was telling me a story about third party people i don't know and the story was about a a uh, a bad a bad marriage that became a bad divorce and in the story the dad worked traveling abroad and the mom stayed at home with the kid uh and her, and another kid she had had from a previous marriage and she had lots of problems and they they'd split up and she he had he had you know in a in a bad moment had signed a an agreement that was really onerous to him 
and like he was giving her a lot of money, maybe more than he should have. And he sort of his, he had like his rights were very restricted in ways that sort of probably were not fair. And the account I was getting was that this guy was in a bad situation and he was being taken advantage of. And I think probably that was true based on everything I knew about it. But the the exchange was, well, he's working and so he's supporting them financially, right? The mom who's living with his kid and gotcha. a kid from another marriage. Yep. And she's, you know, getting whatever payments from him, alimony, what you know, like all the very child support, et cetera. And the comment was, I said, so what is she doing? And she said, well, she's she's uh, taking care of the kids. And then the follow-up was, so she's not contributing anything. Like he's paying all for right. everything and so she's that- not contributing anything. And so that's such an obviously shitty response that completely disregards all yes. the work of taking care of kids that I think like, I wouldn't say go fuck yourself go fuck yourself that but right. i think it would be i think like my actual response was to grin and bear it and i think that's right. fine i don't think that should be necessary i think you could like make that an elaborate teachable moment and maybe that's the saintly response right but i think also fine would be well it's kind of a shitty thing to say or like you know but I, but, I but that go. but that, what's interesting about right so that that's kind of a shitty thing to say but i think that those that, that's so interesting that those are your two examples because the that's kind of a shitty thing to say makes it a teachable moment and oh i gotta go is grinning and bearing it i'm curious about what the like i think slight pushback well so i think i think the what is maybe what is what based on my own experience because i've given a response of this type this like I, i am irritated by what you just said and i'm leaving and people are people get extremely upset by that because they know it's they what they know that what's implied is that they did something wrong and you're not telling right. them what. And like right. and my thought is like, well, if I don't feel like if I don't have the energy to like make this a teachable moment, like I'm gonna let it be on you to figure that out. And I think like totally. that may that I would say that's not a particularly aggressive response. People get even more upset by that than if you just openly say, fuck you. If you say like Great. that sucks what you just that said, makes sense. and I'm leaving like is so upsetting to people. And I think, you know, in the same way that like probably people say things like that without at all, in in, in a totally innocent way, you're still responsible for the effect it had. And like, you're not always responsible for teaching them. So I think that's the way in which I kind of, I I weirdly split this baby. No, well said that, that, that makes sense. I want to return to naked purience, prurience (laughs) before we get to Fetterman. I don't have it up in front of me, but the definition of prurience is like, sexual or or like darkly sexual or like selfishly sexual is that what purience means so i'm or like lewd I'm getting, actually you know what like, I, like, I learned I, I i've noticed recently that uh the american heritage heritage dictionary which proudly proudly presents uh, etymologies often presents false etymologies or will say origin unknown when the origin is very much known <laughs> so, <laughs> so i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna ignore that for a second i'm gonna look so, uh this i'm up. on miriam webster that says it's the act of being purient prurient and prurient means marked by or arousing an immoderate or wholesome interest or desire especially sexual desire I- immoderate or unwholesome so, i assume it says yes exactly yeah, yeah, yeah. immoderate or unwholesome sexual yeah. desire and the, so the, it looks like the root is uh latin for itch like you're scratching oh, that's an itch. Interesting. You're scratching an itch yeah. by asking this or by looking into this. Which is, I guess, where we get the which kind of is, like sexual Which is like animal right. Like Yeah, like you're responding to an to a like a base urge. So what do you make of putting the word naked there is a funny word as a modifier because yeah. naked naked 
read like one's gut when reading naked prurience is to just make the prurience more sexual but the actual use of naked i think is like unhidden like an open prurience is what yeah. she's yes because she's yeah, not yeah, talking yeah. about sexuality so she's right. using the word naked to amplify a sexually charged term sexually yeah. but not looking for a sexual connotation Right. I think she's using so that's naked... bad writing, right? Well, I think it's bad writing in the same way that her including that anecdote about the New York Times editor is bad writing. Like, I think it's, I think it's like, I think it's, I, I like it because basically it's so the, do deno I. the denotation, yeah, I like the denotation serves a functional purpose and the connotation is revenge. That was this week's show. Thank you all for listening. If you would like to hear the second half in which we get into another Jen Senior article that is sort of obliquely related, maybe unintentionally related to the first one, also pretty interesting, but fairly weird, uh, then you go to sleeverickets.substack.com and sign up for the secret show or just stick your email address in there to get a week's access for free. We do almost unavoidably get into politics a little bit so if you are extra excited to be infuriated by our lackluster commitment to progressive values and or rabidly irresponsible promotion of said values then check it out now thank you again and with any luck i will be speaking to you again very soon until then